Welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. I'm Aaron Helliard, Artistic Director of Pinchgut Opera. I've just come back from my first trip to Italy. I've never been before, can you believe it? It was an incredible trip, not least to see so many places and artworks that I've only seen before in books. One of the most memorable trips was a visit to the Palazzo Barberini in Rome and reminded me of Cardinal Mazarin and the significant influence Italian musicians had on the French in the 17th century. We're also about to embark on a program of Charpentier that includes a work he wrote in French and a work he wrote in Italian. It also includes a piece that has both a chacon and a passacai. So it got me thinking about the balance of trade between France and Italy. Who imported more and who exported more, musically speaking? So many dances, genres and forms that today we think of as quintessentially French actually had their origins elsewhere. So in today's podcast, I want to talk to you about how Italian musicians found their way into France in the 17th century and what the French did with their dances and their opera. We also discuss the burning question you've always wanted answered, and that's what is the difference between a chacon and a passacaglia? Welcome to French Imports. That was the overture to Act 3 of Cavalli's The Loves of Apollo and Daphne with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, with myself conducting from the keyboard. This is the kind of Italian music that Parisian audiences heard in the 1640s when Italian opera first came to that city. Opera as a genre was barely 40 years old, and it was actually the stage machinery more than the music that excited public attention. 
But before we get to the 1640s, let's examine some of the things that the French imported. The two decades leading up to the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648 witnessed an extraordinary surge of creativity in European instrumental music. This was fueled by a vibrant exchange of musicians across nations and a newfound awareness of distinct national styles. During this period, there was a growing English presence in Northern Europe, thanks to the travels of the musicians themselves and also the widespread publication of their works in Germany. Italy remained an alluring and lucrative destination and a training ground as well, while the connections between England and France thrived due to strong royal ties. France exported dancing masters and lutenists, whereas the Low Countries served as a meeting point and a sanctuary for exiles. Italians enthusiastically embraced the Spanish guitar and its music. All this movement and interaction left a profound impact on the development of dances. Suites, or collections of dances, have always been great examples of multiculturalism. Each dance in a suite often has its origin in one country, but was then popularised or naturalised in another. So let's look at the classic order of the suite, as standardised by around 1650. There are four dances in the classic order of a suite. I'll use their French names first. The Allemande, the Courante, the Sarabande, and the Gig. In Italian, we call them the Alamanda, the Corrente, the Sarabanda, and the Giga. Allemande, or Alamanda, literally means German in both languages originally from Germany and originally danced, by the end of the 17th century, the Allemande had become solely an instrumental piece for the lute or harpsichord, and it was characterised by a flowing series of notes. Italians and French alike relished its meditative qualities. Here's a French Allemande from the 1650s by Louis Cuprin. The Courante, Sarabande and Gigue were still being danced in the middle of the 17th century. Courante in French and Corrente in Italian both mean running or flowing. Now, we're not quite sure where this dance originated from, but by the early 17th century it was popular equally in France and Italy. And like many dances, it soon diverged into two distinct national traditions. The Italian Corrente was a fast triple-metre dance, typically presented in binary form with a relatively homophonic texture. It showcased virtuosity and had a clear harmonic and rhythmic structure. 
In contrast, the French Courante was majestic and grave. It was characterized by seriousness, by a slower tempo, and by rhythmic and metrical ambiguities. Here's a Corrente by Frescobaldi from the 1630s, and then you'll hear a Courante by Louis Couperin from the 1650s. Sarabande, or Zarabanda, originally came from the New World, from Latin America, and it was enthusiastically imported into Italy through Spain as part of the repertory of the Spanish five-string guitar. Italian guitarists brought the Saraband then to France, and in a good example of cross-cultural exchange, French-style Sarabandes appear in Spanish and Italian guitar books in the 1620s. Like many dances that were popular in both nations, French sarabons are slower than Italian ones. And by the 1650s, many sarabons had developed a distinctive rhythmic pattern that involved a dwelling on the second beat. You'll recognize many Baroque pieces that use the sarabons as a foundation. The opening of the Goldberg variations and La Chakia Pianga are two that come to mind. Here's an anonymous sarabande from the 1650s, and it gives you the rhythmic flavour of this very distinctive dance. The final dance of the standard 17th century suite was the Jig. This was a late addition to the collection, and it came from the British Isles. Once again, the French and the Italians did their own thing with it. The French Jig exhibited a moderate to fast tempo and featured irregular phrases and an imitative contrapuntal texture. Here's the first half of a Jig by Le Begue in 1687. You'll note that it has the somewhat asymmetrical phrasing of six bars plus five. On the other hand, the Italian giga conveyed a much faster pace compared to the French gig, but it had a slower harmonic rhythm. Typically these were written in 12-8 time and marked often as presto or allegro, and they embraced more regular four-part phrases, and it was more homophonic. 
Here's an example by Vitali from 1683. You'll notice the clear division into two four-bar phrases. So we can see now how so many dances were adapted, naturalised and domesticated by Italians and French alike. None of the classic dances of the standard suite appear to have originated in either France or Italy. The Allemande came from Germany, the origin of the Courant is shrouded in mystery, the Sarabande came from Latin America and the Jig from the British Isles. But later dances, such as the Minuet, the Bourret and the Gavotte, did indeed have their origins in France, and they became popular towards the end of the 17th century. We'll look at French exports in another podcast. But other dances from the earlier part of the century, like the Chaconne and the Passacaglia, flourished first in Italy. But before we look at those, let's examine the exact balance of trade between the two nations. Who exported and who imported more in terms of music? To answer that more definitively, let's return to the 1640s, right at the end of the Thirty Years' War. Cardinal Mazarin is famous in world history for educating the young Louis XIV, the Sun King. He was the head of the government during the regency of Louis XIV, when the king was too young to rule. During his tenure, Mazarin faced numerous challenges. He was an astute diplomat, and he successfully negotiated the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which ended the Thirty Years' War. But Mazarin's influence extended beyond politics. He was a passionate patron of the arts, and he amassed an impressive art collection. Additionally, he played a crucial role in bringing Italian artistic and cultural influences to France. Between 1645 and 1662, seven Italian operas were introduced to Parisian audiences through the efforts of Mazarin. As James Anthony has noted, Mazarin saw Italian opera in France as a potential source of secret agents and as a smokescreen for political manoeuvres. He brought Italians to Paris. In 1643, the composer Mazzaroli. In 1644, the singers Leonora Baroni and Atto Malani. In 1645, the designer Giacomo Torelli. And in 1646, the composer Luigi Rossi. Moreover, by the end of 1646, Cardinal Barberini and his secretary, the poet Francesco Butti, had also found refuge at the French court, escaping papal vicissitudes back in Rome. The first opera of any kind in Paris was heard in 1645, and it was a work by Marazzoli. This was followed by Socrates' very famous work, La Finta Pazza, and then Cavalli's Agisto in 1646. The stage effects and machinery, which hadn't been seen in Paris before, excited much public interest. But it was only Rossi's Orfeo of 1647 that really got the public excited. 
Luigi Rossi's patron was Cardinal Barberini. He was in exile now in France, and together with Mazarin's support, Orfeo was produced at the Palais Royal. Given eight times, Orfeo was a sumptuous extravaganza. The opera has six duets, 12 trios, and a prologue that features 24 soldiers singing in praise of the young Louis XIV in three four-part choruses. There's so much in this work that would leave a lasting impression on the future of opera in France. First is the use of a laudatory prologue in honour of the French monarch. Second is the use of dance music, much of it cleverly flavoured by Rossi with French characteristics. Third is the introduction of the slumber scene. This had been a Venetian staple since Monteverdi's time, and Rossi brought it to France for the first time in his Orfeo. Now, I spoke about the slumber scene in my third Baroque banter podcast, so do check that out if you're interested. Let's listen to the sleeping scene from Rossi's Orfeo of 1647. That was an excerpt from Act 3 of Rossi's Orfeo, sung by Taryn Fibig, Anna Dowsley and Chloe Lancashire with myself on organ. It's called Dormite Bellocchi. 
In the opera itself, it's sung by three graces, and Lully used it as a direct model for his own sleeping scene, or sommeil, as the French called it, in a French opera of 1670, about 23 years later. So when Paris heard Rossi's Orfeo, it excited everyone's attention about this new art form. It was a play set to music, with dances and sets and costumes and lighting and spectacle. Paris had never seen such a thing. Orfeo became the talk of the town. It was also an effective bit of smoke screening by Mazarin. Instead of talking about his political manoeuvring, Mazarin distracted the populace with the opera. Everyone talked about Orfeo. Many blamed the economic miseries of the state on the cost of this opera and complained that it was staged by an Italian designer and sponsored by an Italian-born cardinal. But others saw how beautiful and important the new art form was. In 1659, at the height of his influence, Mazarin still faced difficulties in establishing a lasting Italian opera company in France. Despite his efforts, any invited Italian troupe would disband and depart after each opera. In his correspondence, Mazarin displayed unwavering dedication to his vision, valuing exceptional performers over cost. I would rather have outstanding performers and spare no expense than settle for those of ordinary talent at a lower price, he wrote. For the grand celebration of the young Louis XIV's marriage, Mazarin commissioned Cavalli to compose the opera Ercoli Amante, or The Loving Hercules. The plan was to stage it in a magnificently and newly built theatre to be constructed by the famous designer Vigarini and his two sons. However, by the time the king and his bride returned to Paris in August of 1660, neither the opera nor the theatre was ready. As a hasty substitute, Cavalli presented his opera Zerse, which received numerous performances starting on the 22nd of November 1660. Unfortunately, Mazarin passed away before Ercoli Amante could be finally performed in February of 1662. After Mazarin's death, imported Italian opera was discarded in favour of a national style that aimed to synthesise French traditions and preferences. This came about just 10 years later, in 1672, with Lully and the establishment of the Académie Royale de la Musique. But remnants of the Italian genre persisted not only in the concept of fully sung dramatic works, but also in conventions such as the sleep scene, and also grand-scale movements based on the Italian traditions of the chacon that united singers, musicians, and dancers. Now this leads us to our final section in our examination of Italian influence in France, the introduction there of the enormously influential chacon and the passacaglia. These dances are still favoured by performers and audiences today. We relish the opportunities and sense of familiarity that a repeating baseline can offer us. So what's the difference between a chacon and a passacai? Now I'm using their French words now. In Italian we call them chacona and passacaglia. Aren't they the same? Or sort of the same? Indeed, they share similar characteristics. 
Many composers made a clear distinction between the chaconne and the passacaglia, and these differences were often influenced by local traditions or individual preferences. Both dances share a common feature. They're constructed from a repeating number of relatively short units, typically consisting of two or four or eight or 16 bars, each cadencing with a seamless transition into the next unit. Now this flexible structure allows for the extension of these pieces to virtually limitless lengths, and it conveys a wonderful sense of momentum that can be sustained over a long period. And it's this quality that gives the two genres their distinctive flavour and makes them especially valuable in certain contexts, such as serving as the concluding piece in an instrumental suite or a stage performance like an opera. Let's have a listen to some of the bass lines of Chacon's and Passacaglia's. Chaconna. The Chacon probably had its origins in the New World, in Latin America. From there, it travelled to Spain, where it supplanted the Sarabande as the most popular dance. Both the Sarabande and the Chacon were considered by some as immoral and lewd. The Chacon was traditionally accompanied by guitars and castanets, and in fact the guitar was so important for the transmission of both the Chacon and the Pasacalia throughout Europe, as we'll see. One of the earliest sung chacons has a text that says, let's live the good life. Let's go to chaconna. Now, we're not sure what chaconna is, which gave the name to the dance. It could be a place in Mexico, or it could be the onomatopoeically derived 
chaka chak 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 sound of the castanets. Here's what the tune sounded like. Vida vida la vida bono vida vamonos a chacona. You can hear the beginnings of something quite distinctive. It's those chords, one to chord five to chord six, which is the minor chord, and then back to the dominant to chord five again. It's really the minor chord after the dominant that defines the chacon. You can also hear that the chacon also has a kind of funky syncopation that creates an appealing cross rhythm that many composers exploited and enjoyed. The popularity of the Spanish guitar in Italy brought this dance into huge popularity in the early 17th century, and the very first chacon for harpsichord was published by Frescobaldi in 1627. Here's a selection from that piece. Frescobaldi was also the first composer to establish a distinction with the Passacaglia because he published Chacons and Passacaglias in the same collection. And yet, from this time on, the history of the Chacon and the Passacaglia were to be deeply intertwined. So where did the Passacaglia come from? And I'm using its Italian name here. In French, it's a Passacaille. Like the Chacon, the Passacaglia has Spanish roots, but it didn't come from the New World. The term comes from passar, to walk, and calle, street, possibly deriving from outdoor performances in which popular musicians took a few steps between songs. And when they did so, they improvised the Passacai, the Passacaglia, this kind of descending bass pattern. When Italians were going crazy for Spanish guitar music, the Passacaglia took root in Italy. Whereas the Chacon has a kind of cadential feel, that is to say each phrase feels finished or closed, the Passacaglia, in contrast, often has a more open-ended feel. Each repeating section doesn't feel so closed. It feels like it ends, but it sort of ends with promise. Bass lines also often resemble the descending tetrachord of the Italian lament. And that's another genre I discuss in Baroque banter. You want to check out episode five. In general, Italian passacaglias like Frescobaldi's are less exuberant than chacons. They're in minor keys often, they're heavier, they're more restrained and more dissonant. In a funny way, they're like French courants to the Italian corrente. So there's some interesting parallels to be drawn here. Let's have a listen to one of the first passacaglias that were published, again by Frescobaldi in that famous collection from 1627. <laughs>
So how did these Italian imports from Spain then make their way to France? Well, one of the most important disseminators of chacons and passacalias was an Italian guitar virtuoso called Francesco Corbetta. He settled in Paris around 1648 and became the guitar teacher to the future Sun King, Louis XIV himself. He was probably the greatest Italian guitar virtuoso of the 17th century, and he composed and performed many chacons and passacalias. So we can first chart the spread of these dances in France from the time Corbetta settled in Paris. Similarly, the success of Rossi's Orfeo also excited public interest about the chacon and the passacaglia. The opera itself has a very prominent chacon. And a harpsichord passacaglia by Luigi Rossi enjoyed wide manuscript circulation in Paris after the success of L'Orfeo. Let's have a listen to this beautiful work. Chacons and passacalias became so popular in France that they themselves became the new major exporters of the new dance as Italians lost interest in them towards the end of the century. In French opera, chacons assumed a central place in the form of extended and lavish production numbers, which often celebrated a hero or a heroine's triumph or apotheosis. Lully's lengthy and much-admired passacai, as it was called in French, 
in his opera Achmed became an admired model for many composers, including Purcell and Bach. By this time, they had become completely Frenchified, and Chacons were considered faster than Passacaglias, and Chacons were joyful, whereas Passacaglias were more serious. So, what was the balance of trade in the end? Who exported more and who imported more in the 17th century? Well, at the end of the day, I would argue that Italian exports outnumbered French ones. The Italians embraced so many dances from the Spanish guitar tradition. From there, these Italianized dances made their way north. And thanks to Mazarin, Italian opera and Italian musicians like Corbetta and Rossi made a huge impact on Parisian musical life in ways that would forever change French musical culture. Nonetheless, even though the flow of music was very much from Italy to France, French developments and dances also made their way to other countries, although nothing was so influential as the promotion of opera and the popularity of chacons and passacaglias. Do join me next time on Baroque Banter when I discuss French exports in the 17th century. What did other countries take from French musical culture? <laughs>